we have an absolute legend joining us today. He's he's a one that I can tell you emphatically a legend on and off the golf course because of the person who he is. The the fact that you can talk to this individual and you realize that it's a conversation even if it's a first time meeting between friends. Larry Nelson won 41 times as a professional. 10 of those were on the PGA Tour. 3 of those 10 were major championships, the 1981 and 1987 PGA Championships and the brutal 1983 U.S. Open. Larry Nelson also won an additional 19 times on the PGA Tour champions. Between the tours that Larry has played, the total events, number 925, 29 wins, Finished runner-up an additional 36 times and finished third 19 times. How about that for performance? He was a member of three United States Ryder Cup teams in 1979, in 1981, and in 1987. He was inducted into World Golf Hall of Fame in 2006. His path is an amazing one. From learning the game of golf in earnest after he got out of the Army, after he got back from Vietnam, and then what he has done in the playing of the game. You heard me talking about some of the highlights of it. He's played in 70 major championships. He's finished outside the top 25, or inside the top 25, I should note, 17 times, and in the top 10, 8 times. And that includes, of course, those victories. Absolute delight as ever to welcome to the Fairways of Life show, Larry Nelson. How are you, sir? Man, I'm doing great. I don't know what to say. That's one of the best introductions I've ever had. So, well, I, 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 it's who you are, my friend. This is, this is a path that you have defined and authored. I'm just recounting some of the highlights, and there's much, much, much more to it. How are you feeling? How are you keeping? Where are you? How safe are you? What's going on in the life of Larry Nelson? Hey, you know, I'm staying at home. Uh, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, Marietta, Georgia. Uh, yeah, I've been staying home for about a month now. Um, I told somebody the other day, March Madness turned into really madness. I'm watching reruns of ice skating now. So, <laughs> uh, so it, it's been it's been you know uh, it's been a kind of a good experience. And uh, so, but you know, you kind of get used to it after a while, and um, you know, you kind of. I don't want to lose a little bit. Still exercising in case I ever do have a chance to get back out and kind of yeah. play and that kind of stuff. But uh, you know, it's it's been fine here. We we've been much uh, we've been blessed. Uh, so I'm I'm you know just uh, you know just kind of marking time like everybody else in the country is this time. Is it the nature of Larry Nelson to the to be able to kick back, to chill out, to, to relax, or are you a person who's on the go normally all the time? Well, I've done a lot of uh, honey-do stuff the last month. <laughs> you know, we can do a lot of stuff around the house. Thank goodness Home Depot's open and uh, yeah. our uh, local nursery's open. So we're able to, you know, kind of get some things done. And, and honestly, our neighborhood has never looked this good. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> doing the same thing. So... You know, we're all finding things to do around the house, which, uh, you know, it's nice. I mean, it, it really is. It does occupy time. And, um, yeah, finding out that I like to do some of that stuff. 
So I was on my hands and knees this afternoon uh, putting uh, stuff on the back deck, you know, painting the back deck. So, uh, you know, nothing, nothing slows down. So, but no, I always enjoy having something to do. When, when you're out and about, Home Depot, wherever it is that you're going, do people is it is it still a regular thing where people look at and you go hey are you Larry Nelson does that still happen or does it surprise you if and when it happens now? No, if I wore a hat, it would be a lot more, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot of people said, "Oh, I didn't recognize you with your hat off." And, uh, <laughs> so, so I have been I've been um, kind of incognito all my career. I mean, it's been the Larry Nelson on television, the Larry Nelson that they see playing. And then there's the Larry Nelson with his hat off here that nobody recognizes. So, but I mean, I'm kidding. And there are some people that recognize me, but it's more of a one look and then a second look. And then either the wife will say, well, you need to ask him or, you know, something like that. It, and then they'll come up and say, are you Larry Nelson? I said, yes, you know, fine. So <laughs> we'll try to, you know, some kind of conversation or something like that. But I, I get more looks than I do actually people coming up and saying, you know, or introducing themselves or, you know, saying it's good to see you, that kind of stuff. What uh, was your comfort level, Larry Nelson, with, with having in, being in the possession of fame? I never thought I deserved it, I think. I think that was, I was always surprised by it. Um, and uh, for some people that know me, probably it, it makes sense. Other people, you know, they say, well, it doesn't make any sense at all. But you know, when I started playing golf, it was a job. It was a way of making a living. And, it, and when I first began, it was a hard way to make a living. I uh, didn't know whether I was going to be able to do it or not. So the fame kind of came as a result of just trying to feed my family, basically, or, or my success did. It, it was not something that, you know, I was standing on the putting green when I was eight years old saying, oh, I'll make this putt to win the U.S. Open or the masters or something like that. That was not part of my early childhood. And then it got to where I was trying to make those kind of putts. And it was just, you know, uh, actually just to feed my family. And I finally got to the point where that wasn't an issue anymore. Then I really kind of wanted to, you know, do the best I could with the career that, that I had. So it kind of grew into that. It never was something that, I wanted to be on the cover of Golf Digest or I wanted to be on the cover of Golf World or whatever. Uh, that was never, you know, never in my thoughts. It just, it just happened. When you were that eight-year-old kid then, what was your dream? What, what did you think in your wildest imagination that, that would become of Larry Nelson? I wanted to play baseball. That was my number one thing, and I probably was good enough when I was uh, 18 years old to uh, try out um, baseball, with the exception of just a very few people, it's very, uh, say, diplomatic. It's very, you have to be in the right spot at the right time, unless you're in the top 5% of the baseball players. So um, I was playing baseball right before I got drafted in the summertime before. I was playing on three different baseball teams and just doing you know, it was my first love. It was really my only love at that time. And uh, after I got drafted, went to Vietnam, came back, I actually hurt my arm pitching. Uh, it was in two weeks after I got back from Vietnam, and I hadn't played baseball in a year, and I hurt my arm. 
couldn't pitch anymore, and I kind of lost interest in baseball. And so, actually, I started trying to play golf. <laughs> How was it, uh, Larry Nelson, that you got drafted into Vietnam? How was it that you weren't in school at that time? Or in, well, I'm just curious I, how that came about. Okay, I was. Uh, I went to Southern Tech, Southern Institute of Technology, on a baseball basketball scholarship, um, okay. and so I was playing baseball and basketball. We'd go on road trips, and you know there were a lot of things to do on the road trips. Guys, you know, and some of the guys had money. Uh, and they were able to do things that I really couldn't do. And so I just decided I would, I would not play or not go to school uh, the spring quarter and uh, go ahead and work um, and try to make enough money so I could go back in the fall. And I got drafted during that time. I was out for three months. I got a draft notice uh, 10 days after my 19th birthday and I had to report 10 days later. So, 20 days after my 19th birthday, I was in basic training out in Fort Hood, Texas. Wow. Did, and now, w- was your thinking at that time, what are the chances I'm going to go ahead and, and withdraw from school and get a job and make some money, not thinking that there was the possibility that they were going to grab you? Yeah, I never thought that that would be the case because I, I had already enrolled into school for the fall quarter. Uh, so. Uh, it was not like I was not going back. I already was accepted uh, to go back. Um, uh, but uh, it's just the way it worked out. Um, so um, in the next year, they came out with the uh, draft numbers or the the lottery or whatever it was. Yeah. And the next year, I think I would have been like somewhere around 300. <laughs> so I would have never had to have gone. So when you went, how soon did you get shipped out to Vietnam? I actually trained for uh, 18 months. I was in two different units uh, that were actually going over to Vietnam. And um, for some reason, uh, I was shipped out to another another group or another uh, battalion that was doing the same thing, training. Whether I was involved in training other people or being part of that, I don't know exactly what the mentality was of, of moving uh, me from one uh, one group to the other, but anyway, I went only went over there with uh, six months left. I only had six months in the service because I was drafted. That was a two year deal, and uh, so I went over with six months with uh, the 198th Light Infantry out of Fort Hood, Texas. And what did you know of the 198th when you when you were assigned to them? Well, I didn't know anything other than that we were a, <clears throat> a lightweight infantry unit. Um, I was a team leader in an infantry squad, and uh, so all I knew was what my training was and all the films that we'd seen about Vietnam. I didn't know much about anything other than going over, and uh, at that time, the Vietnam War, everybody who was going over in in 68, the whole mindset was just trying to come back, because we knew we weren't going to win the war. Um, It was just a matter of survival, so... um, that was that was really kind of our mindset. But from what I recall about the about about the one ninety eighth is that their survival rate when you got there had not been very good immediately prior. Is is that a correct recollection from prior conversations with you? Well, it didn't. They, they didn't have very good luck once we got there. Uh, we lost a lot of people um, in a very short period of time. Uh, I think a lot of it had to do with the uh, number of. Um, really rookies. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. None, sure. 
none of us had been over there before. Uh, we had very few people within the 198 that actually had been over there before. Um, and so you make a lot of careless errors, uh, especially during wartime or especially in the jungle or rice paddies or whatever. You just make mistakes. And I guess it wasn't long after I left, talked to some of my friends, and they said they started uh, moving some of those guys out into other units and other units putting people in. So they got people in there that uh, knew more about what was going on and all that kind of stuff. And I think they had a lot more success once uh, once they started doing that. Did it help you in some way, Larry Nelson, that being a kid that grew up in the South, you were more familiar with the warmer temperatures, whether, you know, the wildlife, you know, the, the thick vegetation, et cetera. Was there any advantage, did you think, to where you came from? Well, I think the only advantage was I talked to my father. My father was in, uh, he was in the South Pacific in World War II. And um, he just told me some things, you know, like don't step over anything you can go under. And, uh, so just a lot of stuff, you know, just to keeping visibility to a minimum. Um, so... Just that type of thing. But, you know, you get so tired when you're over there. You get so tired of kind of being careful or being on edge or whatever. And you just kind of let down, and that's kind of a scary a scary time. So, um, but, you know, you'd have to drink water out of rice paddies. You know, I mean, it, we'd put quinine tablets in there so that it would kill everything that was in there that was bad for you, apparently. But... So the conditions were not very good, and, and people just kind of get, uh, or the soldiers, they just kind of get tired of the situation. And um, so I think that's the thing that you had to fight probably more than anything. And what was an interesting statistic was that in Vietnam, the average number of days out of 365 that people were in combat was like 280. Um, in World War II, it was like 22. And so the difference in the stress that the soldiers had in Vietnam was so much different than what it was in World War II. Larry Nelson is our guest. Uh, Larry, you were saying that they made you an infantry A-team leader a moment ago. Right. How did you – why did that happen? How did that happen? Did they notice some some leadership skills? But how did you get that role? Yeah, I think it was leadership roles. I think it was, um, you know, we'd do a lot of tests. You know, they'd put us out at point B. We'd have to get to point A without getting caught or whatever. And I was really pretty good at concealment and getting by and getting through. Um, there were a lot of things. I was an expert in three different weapons. Um, so uh, just a lot of stuff. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that you know, I was hunting rabbits and squirrels and all that stuff when I was 12 years old. So, sure, there was there's a lot of knowledge that you gain in the woods. Um, you know, when you're younger, um, and I think that probably helped. The guy that walked point for me was uh, from Kentucky, <laughs> and so I mean, he was similar to what uh, you know what I was uh, that he was raised in the woods hunting and kind of knew where not to go and where to go, and uh, so. Um, it, that I think experience in a way helped quite a bit, um, but I think also the lieutenant, company commander, or whatever knew that um, a, about my background and uh, that that you know out of nine guys or ten guys that I was the one to you know kind of lead everybody around. 
You, you mentioned uh, that this fellow from Kentucky that that was on the point with you. You you from what I recall, you liked being on the point, which which I thought was odd the first time you had told me that because. The impression I had, maybe it was from the movies and everything else, was that the point was not the place that you wanted to be on patrol. Yeah, usually where we were, um, if we sometimes we would go out and we would never go out in less than a squad, um, less than nine people or ten people, and um, we would go out in companies uh, or a company group or a platoon group, um, and what we found out early on is that. The most of the most of the attacks or whatever we got over there uh, were from Viet Cong, and they usually waited until the point group got through whatever it was, either across the rice paddy, and then kind of opened up on the kind of the middle or the back of the, of the of whatever group. They wanted to see how many people were there before they did all that. So usually the point people got through before all that stuff happened. Now, the only thing we had to worry about was stepping on mines or uh, trip wires and that kind of stuff. And and the people, the plume, a lot of times didn't like me because I took them in places I didn't think anybody would put trip wires or mines. Yeah, you probably saved their life in, in doing the same as well. What Was there a time that you can think of uh, that – Larry Nelson felt true fear when when you were just were were petrified of the situation and, and you didn't really have that much control over it. Yeah, it was so funny um, because right now, you know, during this time, all our VHS tapes, like from 1979 to, yeah. we're we're putting them on a digital format. So oh. I've been able to watch a lot of this stuff that I haven't seen in 30 years. Uh, but one of the interviews was, uh, you know, it asked me, well, how do you feel about going in and playing, say, like the last round at the PGA here in Atlanta that I won in 81? Yeah. And I said, you know, there were a lot of times I didn't think I was going to see my 22nd birthday. Um, so there, there's a certain element of, of fear, uh, and there's a certain way to look at things that people think they should be afraid of that have not gone through uh, a period of time where they were just happy to see the sunrise come up. Uh, so, you know, it put everything in perspective for me, or maybe it wasn't the correct perspective, but it was the only one I had after my time in Vietnam was that I was so happy to see every new day. And uh, so that's pretty much how I saw the golf thing, too. I was just happy to see Sunday come. Whether I was two behind or three ahead, it didn't matter. I looked at it the same way. How much would you then say, Larry Nelson, that Vietnam changed you? I think it changed me um, just from just kind of enjoying things that I took for granted before. Um, You know, we live in a hectic world right now, and we are all so concerned about how we're going to face the next day, you know, are we going to make the next appointment? Are we going to sell this stuff? Are we going to, you know, what's going to happen? Um, and I kind of wake up every morning uh, just thanking God, really, that I've got another day. And I've got time to do whatever I need to do. Um, and having grown up, or not grown up, but having my profession be a professional golf, um, I kind of fit in because it didn't bother me. I I enjoyed the competition 
failure was, you know, I accepted failure like I did uh, winning. Uh, so you kind of have to look at them that way. You do the best you can, uh, and whatever happens, happens. I mean, it, it's uh, it. <laughs> I do a lot of practice. I get ready. I do all preparation, but. I have no control over what somebody else does. The only thing I have control over is what I do, and that's kind of the way I went through Vietnam. When when you came back, were you, how do I phrase this, were you lucky in that you didn't suffer from PTSD, et cetera? Were you one of the lucky ones? Uh, you know, I was one of the lucky ones. Now, for a while, anytime any loud noise, um, you know, we, I live next to Dobbins Air Force Base. And every once in a while you hear the planes, you know, engines start or something. It gets kind of loud uh, if you're close to the Air Force Base. And I've picked myself up off the ground a couple of times because that was kind of your first response when any kind of noise went off or if you heard somebody say incoming or if you heard, you know, it was, you, know, you were as close to the ground as you could possibly get. So, for a while after I came back, that was that was the big thing. But you know, I think there are a lot of people that go through that kind of stuff that do end up with PTSD. What is it? PTSD. PTSD. Uh, Post traumatic yeah. stress disorder. Right. A lot of people do and have had that. Um, I've known a lot of the guys that were over there around the same time I was that didn't have that issue, but there were a lot of that did. Um, so I, you know, it's hard to say who does and who doesn't. I don't know that. It's the traumatic things that you see, uh, or I don't know if it's condition of stuff when you come back. You know, I, I don't know how that is, but I was very supported when I came back. I was married, kind of went right back into a lifestyle. When I came back from Vietnam, I was going to school three nights a week, two hours a night, working 10 hours a day, seven days a week. So I didn't have much time uh, to, <laughs> to think much about anything other than what I was doing at the time, and I did that for six months. Before we move off Vietnam, I did want to ask you about a story you had told me once before. Uh, you were with you, you guys were kind of dug in for the night, and if I remember correctly, they everybody fell asleep on the patrol except for you, right? If, if I am recalling yeah, this correctly, was, right? Yeah, my squad. Yeah, and we were you know we were about uh, fifteen feet off the trail, and not very long, but it was really dense, and the trail was not very. Not very wide, but, uh, yeah, everybody had fallen asleep but me. And uh, just a group of uh, Vietnamese uh, came down the trail, and I was just scared to death that somebody was going to wake up. Somebody was going to wake up and get scared and start shooting or something. There must have been 100 people walked by. And so, anyway, very fortunate that, uh, you know, everybody stayed asleep, basically. And uh, so... But it had been a long week. I mean, we had had a long week out in the bush, and um, I think everybody was really pretty tired. But um, it was—I was in charge of everybody, and there's no way that no way that you can wake everybody up or keep everybody awake. But uh, we weren't really even dug in; we were just uh, off the trail. Oh my gosh! Thank goodness it went the way that it went. That would have been yes. obviously yeah. very bad if there were a hundred people at least. That sure. The past you, my goodness. All right, so you came back, as you just recounted for, as you were seven days a week busy. How and where did golf fit into that schedule when you came back? What What did you think your life was going to become versus we ultimately know what happened, 
But w- at that time, what were you thinking was going to be the the pathway forward for you as a, as a new newly married young man? Uh, it was kind of interesting because when I came back, um, you know, like we talked about, I was working seven days a week, ten hours a day. They were building this new C-5 Lockheed aircraft. Lockheed Corporation was building the new big transport C-5A. And it was mandatory, a 10-hour day, seven days a week, uh, to get this plane out. And uh, I was going to school, like I said, three nights a week, two hours a night, um, and did that for six months, not having much time to do anything else but work and and go to school. Um, And finally, you know, I had only one subject left to finish my associate degree in engineering. And so my wife and I would make decisions, well, why don't you just quit work? I mean, it's it's taking a toll on you. Quit work, finish school, and we'll see what happens from there. So I had one subject left. I had from eight to nine, um, and the rest of the time I was free. Uh, And she worked till six, so I was trying to figure out some way to to do something from nine to six. And uh, Pine Tree Country Club was right next to KSU, Kennesaw State University. And uh, so uh, I joined the club just so I would have something to do and started playing golf, fell in love with it. Uh, and, uh, the rest of it's history. Um, uh, I ended up, I was supposed to go to Georgia tech that fall, uh, and the assistant pro left at pine tree. And I asked the head pro there, I said, well, you know, let me just try this. If you don't mind, uh, I don't have anything to do. Let me just be the assistant for a while. And he said, yeah, we'll try it. We'll see. I worked for him for two years. Um, and then the next year I qualified for the tour. So that was pretty much it. When you were there, obviously you had an opportunity to hone your game. Uh, you must have done it, what, early in the morning? How how did your relationship with golf start to develop in that setting? Well, uh, I just saw how many people loved the game, you know, the, the amateurs love the game a lot more than professionals do. I, I'm, I'm convinced of that. I mean, that, uh, I see them playing in weather that I would not play in if I didn't have to. Um, so I, I see that I saw the love of the game. And Bert Seagraves, who was my head professional, um, he just talked about, um, you know, the, the playing. And some of the tour players would come in. You know, I'd be the little assistant there and, some of the guys who were playing the tour would come by three Marietta and come by and see Bert and I would meet them. And, um, you know, I, I just, yeah, maybe it's fine, but I never thought about playing the game. I worked for him for two years, never thought about playing it, uh, tournament wise. Um, I actually applied for a job in Cartersville, Georgia, and it came down to two people, uh, as a head professional, a head professional job I applied for. And I didn't get the job. And a group of the members saw that I was disappointed, knew I was disappointed, didn't get it. And they said, well, why don't you just go down and try to play for a year? And so four of them, five of them got together and says, we'll back you, you go down and play. Uh, if you make it, you can just pay us back. If you don't, you don't owe us anything. Uh, so I go down to Tampa, play on the mini tour for a year, and then qualify for the tour. So even when I started playing and was a member of Pine Tree, I never thought that I was going to play for a living. I thought I was going to be a club professional. I just, I just loved the atmosphere. And uh, not until I didn't get what I wanted and had an offer to go do this. And Bert told me, he says, you need to do it because you'll always forget it if you don't. 
you need to try it because you always forget it. Always not forgive yourself if you don't. And he was but right. Did, I went down. did you know what you were doing when you went down? Did you have any experience in tournament golf? No clue. I didn't know what the PGA Tour qualifying was. I had no idea. I was just going down there to compete and uh, was not very good when I went down. But I ended up winning gee, four or five times over that next year. Uh, in the little mini-tour tournament. But when I qualified for the tour in 1973, in the fall of 1973, I'd only played in one 72-hole event. Whoa! That was, that was the history of my golf at that point. All the other tournaments I played in were 36 holes. I only played, I played in the Far, Florida State Open in 1973 and, and bogeyed the next to last hole and got beat by a shot. Uh, Whoa. State Open. And that was the only 72-hole tournament I'd ever played in before I went to the Tour Qualifying, which was, I guess, a 12-round 12, 12 deal. The first was the local four, and then we had eight rounds at the National. And I finished so 21st are, out of 23. Oh, my gosh. Are, are you is – it, is it your nature that you're a quick learner? I'm not only talking physically in terms of motor skills, but also – I mean, you hadn't played tournament golf. I, I, did you even know what the rules were? I didn't. Nobody knew. None about it. I was the first person in my family to ever play golf. Nobody in my family knew anything about professional golf. The only thing that I knew <laughs> – and my mom saw, we, we watched some of the golf tournaments, if the baseball games weren't on, I watched some of the golf. And mom noticed that Arnold Palmer's birthday and mine was the same. It's September 10th. And um, she said, well, maybe you'll just become a professional golfer like Arnold. You know, and uh, so this wow. was when I was 12, 13, 14 or something like that. But that was the only relationship that I had about golf. So when I qualified for the tour i had not met any of these guys everybody was a hero you know in my eyes everybody was better than me and it took me well i qualified in 73 74 was actually my first full year and uh, i won my first tournament in 79 uh and i won twice that year and finished second i think three other times so it was a kind of a breakout year uh, in 79 but it took me that long to kind of get good enough, I think, um, starting at 22 or whatever to get, you know, if I started at 10, there was a lot of things I would not have that have learned, but it took me five years of on-the-job training, basically, to learn how to play out of bunkers and chip and all that stuff. So, Larry Nelson, when, when, when you were in these settings where you said to everybody, you know, with your heroes that you were looking up to, how did you control your emotions, the sense of intimidation, the sense of comfort in your own skin that you deserved to be where you were? Well, my father told me that uh, I was no better than anyone and nobody, nobody was better than me. So I went into it with, um, I didn't feel like I had anything to prove. Um, I, I just felt like that I needed to do the best you know I could do. And so kind of like just putting your head down and grinding forward basically and um i didn't know whether i was supposed to be there or not all i knew is i had the opportunity so if i could get good enough i enjoyed doing it so if i could get good enough i could stay out there and my first full year in 1974 i played an 11 events, did not make one cut um and shot one under par in san diego and missed the cut so at that time, you had to make $3,500 uh, 
for the year to keep your card. Uh, so my 12th event uh, was in Jacksonville, Florida. I finished eighth, made $3,800. So I was scot free. I could keep my, I could keep my card for another year. So there were, there were steps that were taken that, well, I, 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 I passed this step and now I've got the next step was to, to win or to be exempt, you know, a few more times. You finished in the top 25, you were exempt for that term for the next year. So, if you had 10 top 25s, you'd kind of play your, plan your schedule a little better. Um, and so by 76, um, I let my sponsors go, um, was on my own uh, in 76, and been that way ever since. Uh, for, uh, Larry, how much in, in these early days when you were trying to forge your way through it, trying to get your way uh, to a point that you could contend and you could win and, and everything else that goes with it. You have to learn the golf courses. Uh, you're out there. I assume your wife was traveling with you in those days? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. So what was what was your relationship? And it's easy for us to talk about this now because you're in the Hall of Fame and look back on it. But at that time, what was your relationship with just dig it out of the dirt, Hogan-style hard work and tenacity that you needed? Was that something inherent in your character? Uh, I think it. I think it was. Uh, I think that was inherit. Uh, I her- inherited it from my uh, my father. Um, he he felt like that I could be good at anything I wanted to devote myself to. He he really felt that um, that hard work trumped talent all the time. Uh, so. I felt like if nothing else, I didn't know how much talent I had. All I knew is that I could try to become the best ball striker that I could be. And I wanted to hit more greens than anybody else, more fairways. And um, and it took me a long time. Um, 78, I probably played as good as I did in 79. But my short game improved so much because that's all I worked on on the offseason. And that that was the difference in '78, which is very mediocre, to winning twice and you know having the record I had in '79. Uh, so it was a it was a learning curve for me, um, and until I got out there, until I was able to find out where my deficiencies were, um, I didn't know what to work on. Uh, but I knew always from day one, I always drove the ball straight. I was fairly long for my size, um, and uh, I loved practicing hitting the ball. I hated putting, and that's where it hurt me the most. So I finally realized that that was an important part of it. Uh, and once I got better putting and chipping and sand play, um, it was uh, it just my winning started getting better. My finishes started getting better. I learned how to play on the golf course. It only had maybe four or five bunkers. So learning how to play out of the sand, it just took me a while. Can you think of a time or a moment when you were paired with or what have you, a, a brush with one of these people that you saw as your heroes, a legend, and you kind of had one of these pinch-me moments that, geez, I can't believe what I'm doing right now? <laughs> well, yeah, every time when I – I, can't, I tell people when I'm talking, you know, Nelson and Nicholas, you know, we both start with N's. And so the lockers, they always put the lockers alphabetical. So, um, you know, I would see Jack come in and I'd say, hello, Jack, how you doing? And, you know, he would say hi, you know. 
Intervino always say high pro. He never cared about learning anybody's name. I mean, it was always, you know, high pro and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I got to see these guys, but honestly, I I didn't know enough about the game to really be starstruck. I mean, it it did not. That was not an issue with me. If that if that makes any sense to you at all. You, now, if Mickey Mantle had walked in the room, or uh, you know, some of these guys, Whitey Ford, if they'd walked in, yeah, I would have been starstruck. But I didn't. Gospel, if, I, never, I didn't know. Didn't you win Jackie? Wasn't Jackie Gleason's tournament your first victory? Yeah, tour. Yeah, nineteen seventy nine. Jackie Gleason won. Yeah. So what was it like hanging around with with uh, the great one? Oh, he's great. I mean, he's a nice guy. I mean, he he was a really nice guy. But back then, it was so fun because we would see Andy Williams, Clint Campbell. Um, uh, I mean, you can kind of go down the list. Every tournament had a celebrity. Um, that yeah, probably was, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra. I mean, they were they were all hanging around back in the day. All, Bob all, Hope. Yep, Bob Hope was the, kind of the greatest thing. I uh, family found out that my wife was pregnant with our second child during the interview with Bob Hope. Um, she was not very happy about that because she hadn't told anybody yet. <laughs> anyway, she found out she was pregnant at the. Um, the Ford Medical Center out in Palm Springs. So, you know, being able to talk with these people, I uh, played with Sean Connery a couple of times. I mean, wow. And they, they, that was, that was I was starstruck in, in that regard, too. So, um, but anyway, it, it's one of those, one of those things that I've been very fortunate. Uh, played with the president of China once. I played uh, with two presidents here and a vice president. So, um, it's yeah, for someone who grew up in a you know four thousand uh, person town um, to be able to travel around the world and play golf. Uh, when I look back on it, I say, you know, I can't believe it. I can't believe I had that opportunity. And but golf did afford me uh, just a wealth of experiences. Uh, and um, no, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, we, my wife and I would talk all the time. So, can you believe this? Or, you know, mm. it was, but, it, but it was more the experiences than it was the people. Um, what we were able to do, um, able to go, and uh, just the people that we met uh, through golf. Um, and it's been, I mean, it's been tremendous. You've said that it was hard to get praise from your dad. Did did he your parents did your father was he in them were they able to experience your success in golf? Oh, we carried them everywhere. I mean, they went they went everywhere with us. Uh, huh. My wife's mother and dad and my mother and dad were good friends, and uh, so you know we we took them down to the tournament players championship every year, the players championship down in Jacksonville. We took took them to Hawaii one year. I took mom to Japan one year. Um, so we were able to take them all over the country, um, and they were as much of a part of, uh, of me as my wife was. Uh, and my father, um, I, I don't know if I told you this story or not, but I was really a good basketball player. It was one of the reasons why I got a scholarship. It wasn't because of my size, but I was actually a pretty good ball handler. and mm-hmm. uh, I was a good shooter, and uh, he would always, you know, after I get through, no matter how I did, he would always, but, you know, if you'd have done this, or if you'd have done that, and, uh, always wanted me to be better. And one night I scored uh, 32 points, and uh, I was really happy. I came out of the locker room after the shower and all that kind of stuff, and I said, you know, I'm finally going to get this 
you know, attaboy and that kind of stuff. And it's the first thing you said to me is, you know, you'd have scored 34 if you'd have had to miss that layup. And so it's one of those things that, but no one was my biggest fan. I mean, he, he would tell everyone about me, but he was also my biggest critic. And I think if you see the balance in that, uh, it's, it's very good. And I'm sorry sometimes when people just see the criticism and never get the other part. But I was able to see both, and so I could take the criticism. But it made me a better player. Did did that change as you aged, or did he say, you know, you'd have been four under if you made that putt at 15? <laughs> oh, it was so funny. I, I I was coming back. I missed the cut. In Atlanta, the first time I played at the Atlanta Classic over at Atlanta Country Club in Marietta, we still lived in Ackworth, and not too far from my parents. So mom and dad rode out with me on Friday's round, and I'd played bad on Thursday. I was hoping he was going to play better on Friday, but I played awful. Just hit the ball everywhere, and I missed the cut, and I was a little dejected. We got in the car. Mom and dad sat in the back seat. We were driving back up to Ackworth, and my dad tapped me on the shoulder. He said, son, this was before he started playing golf. He said, son, I said, you know, I don't know much about golf, but if I were you, I'd try to get a little closer to where those flags are on the ground. <laughs> so I keep telling people that was the best advice I ever got, really, from somebody who didn't know how to play. And uh, so, I mean, that that's, that was kind of the story of my life. And, and it was great. I mean, I remember the story, and that was my life's work after that, was trying to get closer to where those flags are on the green. That could be a title of a book for you right there. I want to go for uh, 1979. You're on the United States Ryder Cup team. First one. It's at the Greenbrier. How was it by happenstance or planning or what have you? First of all, you get you get Lanny as a partner, I know, but you end up going head to head against Seve. What was that whole experience like in terms of I know what everybody expected. I sure as heck know what Seve expected. What did you? Well, it was funny. I I had nothing to do with any of that. It was really kind of funny. This was my first Ryder Cup team. Uh, Lanny played on a couple of times, and uh, it was Billy Casper, yeah, right? Casper um, was the coach. I mean, yeah. uh, he was captain. Uh, Lanny Lanny went up to Billy Casper and says, "Billy, let me have Larry." He says he hasn't played match. I never played match play, so Whoa. this was this was new to me. I never played college, so. Uh, high school or anything that had anything to do with match match playing. He says, let me let me have Larry, uh, and I'll just let him go with me. And uh, Billy said, that's fine. He said, that's great. So it ended up that uh, three of our four team matches were against Seve, and they're all picked out of a hat. It's not like, you know, you go against you or you go against me. And, and Lanny and I beat Seve three times, and then, um, and then we beat the other team. I can't remember who they were. But then the draw uh, is a blind draw on Saturday night for the Sunday individual play, and I end up drawing Sandy. Unbelievable! Uh, everybody wanted him. Every and this was how good you know how how people are. But uh, everybody wanted to play, and that's how competitive everybody was at that point. And I end up getting him. I end up closing him out on sixteen, uh, and so three and two. Um, so it, it was. I am just. I end up winning five matches. I was five and zero in that Ryder Cup, and then was privileged enough to probably be on the best Ryder Cup team in the history of Ryder Cups when we went over to Walton Heath in '81. Oh yes, 
we had uh, 11, 11 out of the 12 guys had won majors, and, uh, and 10 of them were in the Hall of Fame or something like that. I mean, it was unbelievable, the, you know, the talent that was on that team. And I went 4-0 there. And I think that was probably as mad as I've ever been because uh, Dave Marr, he came and pulled me over because he knew how much I wanted to play because I hadn't been beat. And I think this was my eighth time. I'd won eight matches in a row. And so he pulled me over and he says, Larry, I'm going to hold you out this afternoon. And I mean, he and I can, I'm not, not really going at it because I respected him so much, but I'm trying to figure out why, why in the world are you going to do that? He says, well, just rest up. So when you get somebody else in there, I said, it's fine. We had such a good team. Everybody needed to play anyway. And so yeah. I went four and oh, and that, that, uh, that Ryder Cup. So my first nine, first two Ryder Cups, I was nine and zero. Incredible. So. I can't even imagine with the back to the Seve stuff how much Seve was inclined to spit fire anyway. He must have been mad as a rattlesnake when when you beat him in singles too. Well, it, it was funny. Seve and I had really a lot of mutual respect. Seve got a bad rap a lot of the times, but some of the times he may have garnered that. I mean, he may have deserved that. But um, for the most part, he he respected um, good play. Um, I mean, he did it so much. I mean, he played yeah. so well. No one. I, if if I had to have picked at that time in my life who to go watch for eighteen holes, it would have been said. Um, I'm talking about instead of Jack, instead of Tom Watson, instead of you know you name it. He would have been the one I wanted to go watch play because. I don't think anybody had better hands than he did. I mean, he, he could get out and do things that nobody else could do at that time. And, I mean, he was just fun to watch. But uh, during that week, I wasn't watching him as much as I was just trying to, you know, take care of myself. I mean, uh, but he and I respected each other until he died. And uh, so, I mean, it was just kind of a mutual thing. Crazy. 1981 PGA Championship at the Atlanta Athletic Club. Uh, was it a benefit for you that it was, uh, I'm going to call it kind of a home game, you know what I mean, but was it a benefit for you that it was there? Um, you know, it's funny because I won in Atlanta the year before. I won the Atlanta Classic in 1980. Uh, so winning at home was not um, not a bad thing for me. Um it gave me a little bit more concentration, but did not put any more pressure on me, which is kind of strange that you can have both of those. But hmm. I felt very comfortable playing at home. Matter of fact, I won three times here. I won the Atlanta Classic in 88 again. So uh, winning at home was not a problem for me. Uh, and I always enjoyed that because I could just go home <laughs> after, after I got yeah. through. So the pressure was kind of off. And, uh so I always enjoyed playing in front of mom and dad, and uh, even though they got to see me play quite a bit, uh, that uh, but it was always fun to play here in Atlanta. And, uh, of course, I always had to come up with a whole bunch of tickets, but uh, <laughs> it was uh, it, it was always fun. And no, I, in '81, uh, that had nothing to do with it, and it certainly wasn't because I had played in the Open in '76 there, but I never played there except you know when they had a tournament. And so it was not like home course or anything. It was just home that I could, uh, you know, get back home in 45, 50 minutes. So you open with a 70 at that 1981 PGA Championship, four shots back of the leader, 
Bob Murphy. You go crazy on Friday and shoot a 66. What changed? You know, it's funny. We, I played nine holes, uh, or actually I played eight eight holes uh, on Thursday. And we, uh, a thunderstorm came in um, and stopped play. We had to stop play. Um, and so we had a chance to warm up before we go back out. And all I did was go back to putting green. I, I putted so bad the first nine holes. And I found a little something at work found something I was comfortable with. I was like three over the first nine holes and ended up coming back and shooting either three under or four under the last night. Um, and, you know, I just felt comfortable with the putter. I was hitting the ball well enough anyway, but I just wasn't making anything. And then 66-66 on uh, Friday and Saturday, ended up with a four-shot lead going into Sunday. So um, ended up winning by four. So it was uh, amazing. Yeah, one of those things that it uh, started putting well, uh, and I was always comfortable with the way I hit the ball, and uh, it just worked out really well. Matter of fact, I just saw the tournament uh, just two nights ago when we were, like I said, we were getting all the VHSs and putting them in the digital format, and uh, so I just watched the other day, and um, I was watching the Atlanta Classic, the 1980 Atlanta Classic, and I honestly didn't know what I did. So it was like watching the tournament all over again. I had forgotten yeah. what I did on uh, 15, 16, 17. So, um, but anyway, it, it's fun to kind of go back and look at all this stuff and uh, and and see kind of how I did, what I did, when I did it. So, when when you won that PGA Championship in 1981, how and what specifically, if I may, did it change for Larry Nelson? It didn't really change a lot other than the fact that uh, then, if you won the PGA, you were exempt for 10 years. You had a 10-year exemption. Um, so, you know, it just took a lot of pressure off. Um, you know, you had to win. You were exempt two years if you won or something like that, or a year. I can't even remember now. But um, So I was exempt then for 10 years, so it allowed me to kind of really plan my schedule, do some of the things I wanted to do and all that. So I was exempt until 91, basically. Uh, but uh, the biggest thing was when I won the PGA in 87 because it was a 10-year exemption also. And so I would be exempt on the PGA Tour until 97. Uh, my exemption would run out, I think it was 30 days before my 50th birthday. Wow. So I was going to be exempt up until I turned 50, and when I turned 50, the, P, uh, the senior tour was bigger than the regular tour. And Hill Irwin in 97 was the biggest money winner in all of golf. Uh, and he was playing on the Champions Tour. Um, so the way the PGAs worked out, uh, it, it, I was exempt really from 81 until 97. Before we jump to that 87 PGA Championship, I want to ask you about your U.S. Open as well in 1983 when you won at Oakmont. What role did Ben Hogan play in helping you win that U.S. Open? <laughs> he was so funny. I would get a chance to talk. I played Ben Hogan equipment, and uh, I always tell people, you know, it wasn't a very big contract. Matter of fact, he really thought we should be paying him for playing his clubs. So it was it was kind of one of those things that, but I would see him every year when we'd go out to the Colonial out in Fort Worth. And so when I was out there playing, um, I went into his office and we sit there and talk for a little bit. And I told him, I said, 
you know, I said, Mr. Hogan, I said, we're playing at Oakmont this year, and uh, I know that you wanted Oakmont. And kind of requires you hitting the ball up in the air. I said, uh, and you hit the ball kind of low, and I just, you know, just like to talk to you about how you did it. And he looked at me kind of funny. He said, I can hit the ball in the air when I want to get to, you know. And uh, kind of was, you know, I'm sorry that I said it at that point. And uh, he said, I'll show you. And, you know, if you want, and I said, sure. So we go out to, well, I don't know what hole it was on Shady Oaks, and he was showing me how he hit the ball up in the air. And uh, ended up getting up to Oakmont and uh, ended up winning the tournament. Um, hit the ball the best I've ever hit it. I think I missed one one fairway, and, and I didn't miss a green poorly the last two rounds. I mean, I was able to putt pretty much every, every hole. Uh, so, I mean, it was just a... Uh, just a really good week on a very hard golf course, and um, I didn't think the rough was bad at all because I never hit it in it. And, uh, the only bogeys I made the last day were two three putts. That was one of the toughest setups of, of U.S. Opens of all time. I, I remember uh, you telling me once before that what Mr. Hogan told you had to do with the cupping of your left wrist at right. the top and, and holding that angle in terms of, of yeah. the loft. Uh, when you were there and and – famously looked down these fairways at that 1983 U.S. Open. You opened with a 75. It wasn't It wasn't like you were on fire that, that opening round. What changed for you as you progressed with a second round 73 and then went crazy on the weekend 65-67? What did you do differently that allowed you to play Oakmont that year? Uh, well, Ben Hogan showed me how to hit it high, but the, the lesson or whatever I got from Jack Nicklaus kind of helped me win the tournament that year. Um, he had always said that he always looked uh, to line up. He would always pick out a spot where he wanted to start the ball about six to eight inches in front of his ball, uh, and he would line up to that spot. Uh, well, what I found out the first day, my 75, was that I was getting really nervous or, you know, I was getting, I was gripping it much tighter. Every time I looked down, all I could see was the rough or the bunkers or whatever. Um, and so I decided, well, what I do is I'll just do what Nicholas said. I'll pick out a spot six to eight inches ahead of my ball. I'll line up that spot, but I won't ever look back down the fairway again. And, uh, so I did that and, uh, I mean, I started hitting the ball great and, um, not until Sunday, the last day, did I feel comfortable enough uh, to actually be able to look down the fairway because I had a, enough confidence in what I was doing that uh, it didn't bother me at that point. But the Saturday round, or the Friday round, Saturday round um, was, you know, just pick out that spot and never look back up. And so I never got nervous. I was just trying Amazing. to make a good swing. And, Incredible. Uh, so it happened, yeah. What happened on that final day uh, after the after the delay? What happened on the par three sixteenth? Well, uh, you know, it was really kind of funny. I'm I'm tied for the lead in the U.S. Open, and we've got four holes. Watson has, I have three holes left. Watson has four holes left. Um, and you would think that you would have a hard time sleeping, or that you would be thinking a lot about that. I had no problem. I mean, it was the most amazing thing. I had no problem. I think it was because I was so um, confident in the way I was playing. I mean, I could have played the last three holes 
with five clubs. I knew exactly what I was going to hit uh, the last three holes. Uh, and uh, end up, that's exactly what I did. I hit those clubs, and some of them I didn't hit quite as good as I thought I was going to, but uh, that's how I played, And um, but was not nervous. I mean, Watson shot 69 in the last round, and yeah. uh, I shot 67. He had a one-shot lead, and he still shot 69 on that golf course, and I beat him by one. So do you remember that par 3 16th with what happened? Well, I hit a forward. I knew that it was like 225, and it's open downhill. Um, and I knew you did not want to miss it right. Uh, if the right was dead, because the pin was close to the right side, and the rough is real deep, and it was almost impossible to get it up and down. So I hit it a little further left than I wanted to, but I wanted to make sure that I was left with the pin. And probably 60 feet, and we had not, of course, this was the first putt. The 60-footer was my first putt of the day, competitive-wise. I mean, I mean, I didn't have enough room to practice a 60-footer on the putting green. <laughs> but this was my first putt. Nobody's been there before, so the greens are just perfectly flat. Uh, and when I hit the putt, I knew that after it got over the first hump, I knew it was the right speed. So now we're just on that direction. And when it went over the last little hump, it was just going right in the middle of the hole. And uh, it was the right speed. Just went right in the middle of the hole and make a 60-footer in my first putt uh, on Monday morning, and I take a one-shot lead. Wow. Amazing. So now you're the 1983 U.S. Open champion. You have two major championships to your credit. The third came, as you noted, in 1987 at the PGA Championship at PGA National. Now, in fact, I was just speaking with, with Lanny a few days ago, and we were talking about how hot it was down there for that PGA championship. What was it like? What was going on that week? How bad were the greens that we've been heard so much about over the years? What was the experience like in 87? Well, um, go back. let me go back about a year because I had decided in 86 that I needed to get in shape. Uh, so I started running and working out in 86 and, um, I felt like I really needed to be back in shape, get in shape if I was going to compete anymore on the PGA Tour. And uh, so it worked really hard. So I get down to West Palm. Uh, Saturday, Sunday, heat index was 112, 114. Holy cow. West Palm in August is not the place to be to play golf. And so anyway, I'm, I'm playing the last day. And honestly, this golf course, uh, the rough was about four inches, but it was so thick that the ball would just tunnel down. I mean, you could see your ball, and it'd just make a little tunnel about four inches deep. And if you hit it in there, I mean, it was pretty consistent. It was pretty much just a layup out of the rough. I mean, that's all you could do. You couldn't hit it 80 yards. And um, the greens, they had killed the greens, I guess it was a week or so before. It didn't have time to grow back, and they were pretty much just dirt. I mean, they would roll them. Uh, but it was pretty much just dirt. So I don't think anybody had, um, you know, a, a no one had an advantage as far as being a good putter or, or whatever. So everybody was pretty equal in that regard. And um, so I played really well, hit the ball really well. Uh, and I, by the time you know, I finished the last hole, Everybody behind me either got tired, made bad decisions or something, but ended up tying Lanny and uh, ended up being Lanny on the first playoff hole. I made about a 
12 footer and he missed about a seven footer, I guess, and ended up uh, winning. Absolutely amazing. When, when you found out, I guess the first question I would have would be how, but when you found out that Larry Nelson, you would be going into the world golf hall of fame with, with the life story that you just recounted for us, how did that feel? How significant was that to you? Well, I remember getting the call uh, and telling me that um, I had been voted in. Uh, um, it was very emotional. Um, probably two reasons. It was very emotional that I was going to go into the World Golf Hall of Fame. And, it, and I was sad that my father could not be there. He had passed uh, a couple of years before. Uh, so it was it was kind of a double edged sword, um, but very happy, very very excited about doing that. Again, it was one of those things that um, you know I won three majors and ten tournaments and all this stuff. Maybe I deserve to be there, but you still have to be voted in um, by kind of your peers, I guess, and, or people who have already been in. Uh, so that was that was very rewarding. Uh, in that regard and you know then it was trying to find somebody to introduce you and uh, it was so funny Gary I've always enjoyed Gary Player and uh, so I actually call Gary and uh, just ask him you know Gary I've been inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame would you introduce me and uh, he said you know laddie I'd be happy to and uh, so anyway he introduced me um, at the World Golf Hall of Fame and then of course, Arnold and Jack are sitting in the front row. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm up here speaking and whatever, and then I see these guys, all these guys that had gone into the Hall of Fame before I do, uh, before I did. And um, it was so funny at the cocktail party afterwards, after the induction of whatever. Arnold came up to me and says, "Now, why didn't you ask me to introduce you?" And uh, so it's one of those things. I had played with him twice in a team championship down in uh, um, down at Disney World. It was a you know, a two-man team thing, a regular event down at Disney, and uh, asked him to play with me, and we played together for two years. So it was kind of an interesting thing. But, um, you know, going through all that and uh, being inducted in the Hall of Fame and having your bust or whatever it is uh, between um, Byron Nelson and Jack Nicklaus, it's really kind of a um, an interesting place to be. Indeed, an interesting place to be. Larry Nelson, I just have one more question for you before we let you go, and I love to ask legends about this. I believe that things happen for a reason, my personal philosophy, and I believe that somewhere, someone needs to hear what we're about to talk about. And I want to ask you about what advice, how you would inspire someone who has their own dream. Whatever it is, something that they they're harboring in their heart that they want to accomplish, what words of counsel do you have for that person in terms of that pursuit? You know, some you know sometimes dreams um, are um, you know not in our realm of possibility. I think we kind of have to be careful. I think what our dreams are. I, I'm not trying to put any or throw any cold water in anybody's face or on anybody's dreams, but, um, you know, it wouldn't be practical for me to dream that I wanted to be an astronaut because I just didn't have the ability to do all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think 
physically, for the most part, uh, as far as golf is concerned, or uh, there are a lot of things where your dreams can be fulfilled. Uh, but a lot of times, a lot of things have to kind of line up in place. Uh, I've always felt that if a door opens, uh, go through it. Um, you know, don't wait for another door to open or whatever, but just keep going through those doors that open that are in the direction that you think you might want to go. Um, sometimes things are not just laid out perfectly, but um, I always felt like that really try whatever. The same advice I got uh, from Bert was, if you don't try it, you may always regret it. So dreams are a process, in my opinion. Um, and so I think... You just got to take the next step. Uh, if your dream, it may not be too big, um, but I think, think at some point in time, you'll find out that it's not possible, but that shouldn't stop you from taking the first step. And, uh, and that's the only advice that I can give is if you have dream, dream big and take that first step and then see where that leads you. So that's that's what I did, and I never regretted it. Larry Nelson, I love speaking with you. I love catching up with you. I wish you and your family the very best through all of this and beyond. We really appreciate your time. Matt, thank you. You can call me anytime. I'm at home. <laughs> thank you, sir. As we all are, pretty much. That's but thank, thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye.